0: Let us open up the Word of God together to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 17, Ephesians chapter 6, actually let's back up a little bit, we're going to read verses 10 through 17 as we seek to consider verses 13 to 17, Uh, Together today, let's just back up a little bit to set the context of where we find ourselves. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Last week we began to be introduced to the reality that for those of us who have been converted for any period of time know all well to be very true. That since that since or ever since our conversion under the gospel of Jesus, we have indeed been in a battle, but not a physical battle fought with carnal weapons of material destruction, but rather a spiritual battle. And the inspired Apostle Paul began to frame this reality for us in the Scriptures last week, which we considered in verses 10-12. through He used words, you noticed, as be strong, phrases such as, put on the whole armor of God, stand against the wiles of the devil. And thus, we were introduced to the spirit-filled battle. And we considered that there is, in verse 10, a preparation for that battle. In verse 11, there's a goal in that battle, and there were real foes in the battle. These teachings on spiritual battle coming at the end of this letter are desperately needed, beloved, in our own day. I hope you would agree as much as the original audience here in Ephesus. Why? Well, because very simply, the wiles of the devil are still at work. They have not changed very much, and we briefly reviewed some of those wiles of the devil last week. Today, we're going to consider the six pieces of spiritual armor that Paul identifies, as you see in verse 11, the very armor of God. And it is provided to us as His sons and as His daughters, as the Bible calls us in this letter to the Ephesians, His children of light to be utilized in our daily Christian living, in our daily Christian spiritual battle. So how do I propose that we look at today's text together? Well, I propose to you that we first, in verse 11, we back up just a bit. I said we were going to do this last week. And we consider the command and the source of, of the armor that we're going to use in this spiritual battle. The command and the source of this armor. Verse 13, I want us to consider together the purpose of the armor for this spiritual battle. And then in verses 14 through 17, seek to understand and appreciate something about the individual pieces of the armor. So let us look again at verse number 11 and consider the command and the source of this armor that we are to utilize as Christians in this spiritual battle we're in. Verse number 11 says, you see the command here, put on, put on the whole armor of God. Now, Paul uses this Greek phrase that's translated here, put on oftentimes in his epistles. Listen to how he uses it in Colossians 3.12. He says, put on, but listen to what he says we're to put on here. Put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. And then he uses the phrase in another letter to a different church in the Church of Rome. He says in Romans 13 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. In these verses, Paul is clearly speaking, isn't he, in spiritual analogies. Because you can't put on light. Uh, you, you can't put on mercy. You know, it's not like a, a shirt you put on. So he's speaking in spiritual analogies. And indeed, that's what he's doing today in our, in our text before us. The Greek phrase translated, put on, in our English Bibles, it literally means to clothe oneself. And this lends perfectly, doesn't it, to the analogy that Paul has drawn before our attention today with armor. Because this original audience here in the church of Ephesus, they would have been very familiar, seeing soldiers riding on the horses all the time, monitoring, and the centurions watching. And they would have been what? Clothed with armor that they had put on physically. And so the analogy is is really genius if you think about it. It's given us this idea that this armor that God's going to give us is something that's to be so intimately on us as if we can feel it on us. It's something that we're actually wearing. We clothe ourselves with it. And so in this command we see in verse 11 as we're considering the command to put on, it is by God through His apostle a direct challenge to all of us as we see in verse number 13 to take this armor and to appropriate it for ourselves, to take it. God's given it to us, and to set it apart, and to utilize it for ourselves. It is the armor that God has supplied us. Now, all this talk about spiritual analogies, spiritual armor. Doesn't it, church, emphasize the main thrust and design of what we learned last week in verse 12? That, that that main thrust in verse 12 where we emphasize that ultimately our foes, no matter who they are, are in fact connected to and can be traced back to the leader of all spiritual darkness, Satan himself. So this analogy of having spiritual armor, it really emphasizes what we learned last week, that this warfare is spiritual. And even though there are some physical uh, enemies that come against us in the church, they're ultimately Connected to the arch enemy of spiritual of Christ and His Church, this of all spiritual darkness, Satan himself. Thus, God supplies us with this spiritual armor that's suited for warfare against this spiritual arch enemy of Jesus and His Church. God's armor, we see, we are to put on is not physical in nature, but it's spiritual. So, let's just consider for a moment that this is the armor of God. They consider the command, but it's actually His armor. And oh, beloved, the first observation that we ought to glean from this is the loving, tender care and the thoughtfulness of our Heavenly Father to not leave us alone in such a conflict that He knows lies ahead of us. In other words, what we see here, this phrase, this is the armor of God, God did not rescue us. God did not liberate our minds from the prisons of Satan's blindness and darkness and then say to us, well, good luck to you. I hope to see you on the other side someday. Wink, wink. I hope you make it. No, He gave us His armor. What He exhibits here in this is His abiding and His continued love for us. By providing us that which he knows, listen, is 100% effective in the warfare that we will be engaged in. It is his armor that he has given to you, dear Christian. And when utilized, he knows it's, I say this without hesitation, 100% effective against all the wiles of the devil. Beloved, this is the armor of God, which, if you would allow me the analogy, Paul's certainly using analogies here, It was produced, not made in the USA, but made by God Himself. It would come with the stamp of God's approval upon it. This is the sanctioned armor That if if you would allow me to continue the analogy in heaven being produced in the factories that's manned by all the angels is coming out of heaven for the, the utilization of all of the church to take upon themselves for the battle that they will be in. God's armor. Well, what is the purpose of this armor? We're to put it on. We're commanded to make sure we don't leave any peace out. You see the word, the whole armor of God, the complete armor of God. Well, what's the purpose of this armor? Knowing that this is, as we said, God's approved and supplied armor, and knowing that Satan is our ultimate foe, we now come to verse 13 where we have this transitionary Greek adverb translated in our Bibles in the English, wherefore? Or, Some of your translations may have it uh, translated for this reason. For this reason, verse 13. Take unto yourselves God's armor. Why? That ye may be able to withstand. Or, some of your translations may say, that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Well, what's the evil day? It's the day when Satan's wiles are thrusted upon you when his fiery darts are aimed at any weak point in your armor. This is why you're to, uh, the purpose of this armor, God gives it to you to resist and to stand in that evil day. Now listen closely, dear Christian. While indeed there are many other creative and even helpful accessories that we as the church wish to put onto our armor, we wish to add to our armor, To assist us in living our Christian life in our day and age, many of these could come in the form of blogs, could come in the form of music, Christian cinematography, etc. I think you get the point. Never ever fail to utilize that which by God's own word, He Himself tells you here that He has provided you that will make you able. You see that in verse 13? That's the purpose of the armor. That it that it says ye may be able, it will enable you to withstand the enemy. Now, let's consider this phrase "ye may be able" as it highlights the purpose of God's armor. Upon first glance, doesn't it in our English translation suggest sort of just a chance ye may be able? Right? Then it suggests to us just a, a possibility of being enabled or supplied by God to withstand. That ye may be able. I mean, why doesn't it say, Brother Cox, that you will stand, right? Well, this Greek phrase, it carries with it in the lexicon the idea that you need to understand that it's speaking with certainty, Levi. The first understanding of this Greek phrase, the original Greek phrase is to be able. The second is to be able to do something. So the armor of God gives you the purpose to be able to do something. And the third, listen to this, the third reason or the third purpose of the armor of God is to be capable, be made strong, or powerful. Now, in light of that, listen to how this same Greek phrase is used in a couple other places in Scripture. It becomes apparent of the purpose of God's armor and why it's so important. Matthew five 5.14, I'm sorry, Matthew 5.14 you know this passage, I'm sure, where the Bible says that you are light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Same Greek phrase translated "cannot." You hear the certainty, right? It's not a an if or a maybe. No, you cannot. Listen how it's translated in Matthew seven eighteen: a good tree cannot. Same Greek phrase. Translated, you may be able in our text. Translated there with certainty cannot bring forth uh, evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And so, dear child of God, understand here in verse 13 that the purpose of your loving Father who has left you here in this world to withstand, to resist Satan, all of Satan's legions, all of those who are under the spell and the enchantment of Satan's wiles and his lies is to give you this armor so that you can with certainty able to be resisting Satan's schemes. This is the purpose of God's armor. It doesn't make it a possibility for you to withstand. God gives you this armor to utilize so that you will be empowered to stand. And if you're like me, in your moment of honesty we're going to go through these pieces of armor and you're going to say to yourself every time I don't stand it's not because of the armor it's because I have not used the armor God's armor he gives us it does enable us to stand and to resist the schemes, the lies, the wiles of Satan so therefore let us take it up But before we take it up, let's have a better understanding of each individual piece of the armor. And this is where we move to now in considering verses 14 and 17. We understand something of the command. We're we're called to put it on. We understand, of course, that this is God's very own crafted and authorized armor. We understand of its power that he has uh, enabled it to uh, give us the the resistance, the, the strength, the fortitude... To withstand the schemes of Satan. Let's understand now together, church, what are these pieces of armor and appreciate their purposes further. Well, first of all, there are six pieces that are identified. We have truth in verse 14, we have righteousness in verse 14, we have the gospel of peace, verse 15, faith in verse 16 salvation and the sword of the spirit of the word of god in verse 17. Now upon initial consideration regarding these pieces of spiritual armor, notice with me that the first 3 are something that we always have on. Truth, righteousness, and the gospel of peace, meaning the belt, right? The breastplate, and the shoes. A soldier in battle, no he never takes those off. Notice the other three are three that he always keeps close hand, but he sometimes doesn't have them always on. But they're always accessible. They're always prepared, they're always maintained so that in the bat when the battle uh, is uh, thrust upon him and he's called to jump into the battle, he can readily pick them up, place upon himself, and get into the battle. So let's consider the first piece that we always are to wear. And that is found in verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Well, first of all, we notice that stand therefore is the third time Paul's telling us to to, to not be moved, just to hold still. We considered that last week. And he identifies in this spiritual analogy that truth can be considered like a belt of some sort. In the first century... The soldier, he wore a loose tunic. And many of you have seen the picture of the Roman soldiers. I I call them a skirt. They almost look like a skirt around his waist. But it's a tunic. And they were often loose. But when he would be engaged in a battle, it was necessary for him to cinch it up, to tighten it up. Because in the heat of the battle, they did a lot of uh, close contact, hand-to-hand combat. If he's got something loose, it has the potential of getting caught on something. It has the potential of getting him tripped up and cause him a disadvantage in the battle. And so what they would do if they know they're about to go into a battle, what they would cinch it up. They would pull it up. They would tighten it up. And this is the analogy that Paul's given us here. Gird up your mind. You hear this in other epistles of Paul. With what? With truth. With truth. But what truth? Well, don't you remember what he taught us in verse 10 of last week? The truth of our union with Christ that we have been through Christ brought into a right relationship with God the Father. The truth that Christ, the power of His might, verse 10, that His resurrection, our promised resurrection is certain going going to happen. So it's the truth of our union with Christ, the truth of, uh, of our resurrection in the future. And thirdly, to all truth revealed in God's Word. This is the very first weapon that we even amplified last week that we're to employ in the uh, spiritual battle that we're going to find ourselves in each and every day. Beloved, this is God's Word. And God's Word frames all of creation, including heaven and hell. And thus, God's Word is that which is to be the caliper for everything that presents itself to us for acceptance, for rejection, or needed correction. Everything must be brought before the scrutiny of God's truth. When we fail to do that, we have already began to lose that day's battle. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, any of you, I'm sure, would admit with me and agree with me in saying each time that I have lost a battle in a day, it's because I didn't bring a particular thought, a particular emotion, a particular proposition through a proper filtering system through the truth of God's Word. Uh, I didn't do it because perhaps I didn't want to do it. I had my own desire, my own passion, whatever. Uh, I knew what God's truth would say and, and that's not the direction I wanted things to go, you see. We've already laid down the very first thing that we're to utilize. The inscripturated Word of God, which He has providentially preserved, He has protected, and He's kept pure in all ages, is that which teaches us true facts or you could say the reality that all things must be compared to the truth of God's word and we need this belt of truth don't we for the prophet jeremiah tells us in jeremiah 17:9 he reminds us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it no matter how long lily i walk with the lord No no matter how much experience I have in handling His truth, the the truth of the Scriptures through the prophet Jeremiah applied to me. My heart still is deceitfully wicked. And because my heart is deceitfully wicked, I can take situations, I can take certain things, and I can, through a natural bias of my own fallen flesh, still remnants within me, uh, ignore Certain things that I know God's word would say to it, right? I would minimize certain truths that I know God's word would bear testimony upon a, situ- a situation or a choice I have to make. We previously learned that back in I- uh, not Isaiah, um, Isaiah, by the way, we've been reading through Isaiah. Paul, if you study out these chapters it's going to come through for us today, this whole uh, analogy of spiritual warfare and uh, using armor. It's it's language borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. It's all, it's all through it. We're going to look at Isaiah 59 today to, to demonstrate this. Uh, but I misspoke. What I meant to say is we previously learned back in Ephesians 5.17 that the key to understanding the will of the Lord in our lives, you recall, was being a person who is eager to seek how the Scriptures in principle and precept can be most ably applied to our everyday lives. And so we're open to this truth. We are searchers of God's scriptures. We want to understand. It's not just the pastor's job to get a lexicon. Use Blue Letter Bible. Guys, this is what I use when I study scriptures. BlueLetterBible.com. It has all the lexicons. You can look up the Greek meaning of words. You can get you know cross-references, all this stuff. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. But the one who is wanting to be guided by truth, to utilize this great belt, to cinch up the thinking of their mind, they're studying God's Word because they know it is how God speaks to them. They know it is how He will lead and protect and guide them. This first weapon, before we move into the next one, isn't it the most practical? Why do I say this? Because it's the most readily accessible, especially in our church especially in the day and age in which we lived. I just rattled off a Bible app. There's hundreds of them. You could go anywhere and get a Bible. It's the truth of God. It's the very first weapon He gives us to help us in the battle against all of the lies and the schemes of the evil one. Let us use the belt of God's truth to cinch up the thinking that comes through all of our minds and in our lives. We come to the second piece of armor we see here. Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness. This piece of a soldier's armor is often uh, a tough, sleeveless piece of leather. Uh, My research showed that even some of the soldiers would sew or attach hooves or animal bones to it because it's another layer of protection, right, Levi, of somebody trying to hit one of these vital organs that are protected in the torso area. And Paul's saying that these this breastplate is, is, is considered the righteousness which protects the most vitalist organs of our spiritual life. And in his analogy to our spiritual armor, the inspired Paul identifies righteousness as functioning in this vital protection. But here's the question Who or what righteousness will serve properly as a breastplate? to resist against Satan, who the Bible clearly identifies as being our number one accuser. Our number one accuser. No doubt, uh, the prophet Job's running before your mind. You remember Satan before the throne of God um, wanting to test Job and so forth and so on. Satan does this. He's uh, identified as an accuser. What, whose righteousness will serve as the breastplate? At this point in this scripture, there are very scholarly men who I respect very much. They interpret this as teaching Paul um, communicated to the Christian church that is, it's the church's obedience, it's the church's righteousness performed through spirit-filled, organic fruit bearing that serves as a breastplate to protect them, their vital organs. From the darts of the evil one who wants to accuse them because they're hypocrites. So the way they handle this passage is they say, um, the righteousness, the breastplate righteousness Paul's communicating here is in the context of this Ephesian letter of being the things that we work out in our salvation, our obedience, which there was a lot of that emphasis beginning in chapter 4. And it is because of our fruit-bearing righteousness that we can withstand Satan's whispers to us as being failures and hypocrites, thus being a weak spot in our battle. Kind of understand, it's a very useful interpretation. However, you always like when Pastor Doug says however, right? However, while I do appreciate the usefulness of that interpretation, and I do appreciate that it gives ample weight to the overall context of our orthopraxy in chapters 4 through 6, how our salvation is applied in our lives. While I think it does do weight to how Paul has used elsewhere the word righteousness as being a fruit of the Spirit, which we do do, I must allow several other things to persuade me, and I hope you too, to agree with an old particular Baptist preacher named John Gill, and theologian, who said this, "Quote: Here is not meant the works of righteousness performed by men. Though these are the righteousness performed by men, though these are offense when rightly used against the reproaches and charges of the enemy, so there is a degree of truthfulness to that interpretation, are righteous living fueled by the Holy Spirit, does serve as offense from uh, false accusations or perhaps even true ones of Satan coming against us, right? To shake us. You're not really a Christian. To shake our assurance of salvation. They do serve offense. Rather, what is being spoken of here is the righteousness of Christ, which being imputed by God and received by faith is a guard against... And he further says, repeals the accusations and charges of Satan and is, and here's the key, it is certain security from all wrath and condemnation. The righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that serves known as the certain security from all wrath and condemnation. But how do we know we're right? How do we know that we can use that correct handling of the Word of God because it does have some practical implication of of how we apply the text in our lives. Well, here's what's helped me, and I hope it'll be some help to you to to see that when I started reading the commentaries, I kind of had this already fixed. I was noticing the red flags when I was reading some of the other uh, scholars on this, and it just didn't set well. Here's what helped me. Do you guys remember, in the most immediate context, preceding this verse in verse 10, how that we understood to be strengthening the Lord was not in our own doing. You remember we went to the book of Hebrews and we saw that the mighty men in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11 and the mighty daughters of Zion, they were strengthened by God, a source outside of themselves. Do you guys remember that? So in verse 10 in preparations for the battle, the context there was us looking outside of ourselves to what? God doing the strengthening for us. And then do you also remember that to be, uh, have a proper understanding of the phrase that Paul said in preparation for the battle in verse number 10, the power of His might, was again understanding that we look outside of ourselves to the demonstration of the power of Christ and His bodily resurrection over death. Again, we look outside of ourselves to prepare us for battle. And so my first question was, why the first weapon or I'm sorry, one of the first few weapons that I'm supposed to pick up is supposed to be looking introspectively at me and what I do to be a certain security for my own protection against the schemes of devil. So that was the first red flag, the immediate context of verse number 10 that precedes this. I'm doing basic exegesis here. But then listen to this, and this is where it gets interesting. The use of Paul of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's words are all throughout this analogy of armor but specifically Isaiah 59. And this is what helped me most see that that Paul is desiring, is inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to see this as Christ's righteousness, which is our best best breastplate. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59. When I saw this, guys, there's times when you're studying the Bible, you find things and you just want to say... You know, praise God, this is so neat. You want to go wake up? Honey, I, I, I should, if I did this, I would have woke you up at 10 o'clock, not midnight, um, about the other controversy that I was telling you about. But um, this is the kind of stuff you read, and you're just like, oh, thank you, God, for opening this up, you know? It's, it's right here, Isaiah 59. Now, we don't have time in the sermon. I'm going to lose way too much time if I read this all the way through. But here's what I want to show you. Look at verse 1. Now the context here, uh, Isaiah the prophet, he's describing the heinousness of the nature of sin. But he's also pointing to the promised Messiah who will remove that sin. So that's the context we're coming to in Isaiah 59, All right, Look what he says in verse 1 with that context in the back of your mind. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. You automatically hear the context here is, is coming into God as the Savior, right? Or God will save. God will provide a way to save. Look at verse 3. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. What's he doing there? Like I said, he's highlighting the heinousness of their sins, right? They deserve justice, they deserve condemnation. Oh, who's going to save them? Look at verse 8. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them or them, for themselves crooked paths. They're not going to save themselves, Nolan. They can't save themselves. Their hands, he said, are cl- covered in blood and iniquity. Ah, but verse 15. We're getting closer. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. You hear the, the, the Messiah being prophesied here. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, the intercessors, it sustained him. For he, the intercessor, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. And was clad with zeal as a cloak. Whose breastplate of righteousness is being described there? The intercessor. The coming promised Messiah. Who can do what man cannot do for himself. Paul, do you not see who knew the prophet Isaiah, who knew all of this analogy language with armor, is borrowing it to point us here in this verse of our own spiritual armor and our breastplate is the breastplate of the intercessor. Beloved, I'm convinced this is the meaning of the text. And then third, all other pieces of armor. Here's my third reason, which ultimately belong to God and are given to us by God, such as truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation... They begin with Him, and they are only made effectual, or that is, effective, useful by God. While I fully agree that when we as Christians are in communion with the vine, that is Jesus, we as branches will bear fruit as a natural result, John 15 5, and that fruit, or that is the act of doing good works, the acts of producing real Christian righteousness in our own lives, will, yes, as John Gill said, serve as offense to serve as a reproach against the charges of the enemy. Nonetheless, I contend that Christ's perfect righteousness, which Paul lays out here, is what we are to ever look to to serve as a certain security to protect the most vital organs of our spiritual man in the spiritual battle. Because why? Paul, again, like Isaiah in 64.6, properly understood that all of our righteousness is still considered as filthy rags in the eyes of a pure, thrice holy God. And so, I don't know about you, but I do not want my righteousness as serving as my breastplate, because as I told Brother Scott before church, as my own family would witness Friday, if it was my righteousness, I wasn't wearing my breastplate very long, brother, on Friday. Had a long week, looking at my hands, busting knuckles, equipment not working, getting frustrated, getting discouraged, after preaching a sermon on Sunday about resisting discouragement. If I was to look to my own righteousness, I was vulnerable and susceptible to the wiles of the enemy, weren't I? I took my breastplate off. Ah, but it's not my breastplate of righteousness. Church, it's Christ's. That's what Paul wants us to look at. Well, let's move to our third piece of armor. Our third piece of armor. It's described as the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. The soldiers at this time, um, to help them gain a footing in their in their battle, uh, archaeologists tell us that, that they would have put nails in the bottom of their their shoes to help them stand firm in a fixed position and not get uh, moved or get tripped up. And we see here in verse fifteen and uh, verse fifteen that Paul compares our footing, our ability to, to stand firm in a position, to not lose ground in the thick of a battle, is this gospel of peace. Now I think for us to really uh, understand why this is the shoes, the boots, you could say, of warfare. We need to consider what he called us in Ephesians 5.1. You probably just got to turn one page in your Bible. Listen and remember what Paul called us in Ephesians 5.1 to grasp the reality of why this gospel of peace serves for us as boots for warfare to help us stand our ground. Do you remember in Ephesians 5.1 when we were called God's dear children? How did we become such church? How did we become God's dear children? Well, we were adopted by God Himself through the perfect and complete work of Jesus. It was through Jesus that we have peace with God. And as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.22, we can now, through Jesus, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience And therefore let us hold fast with the profession of faith without wavering. We have peace with God. We have a clear conscience. This is the peace. This is the gospel peace. This is what the gospel offers us. When it brought us into communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ, it offered us um, uh, a a, a putting away of the war against God. Uh, The the condemnation that we felt as we uh, continued to white knuckle and hold on to everything that we wanted. No, come and accept the peace that the gospel offers you. The peace that you can come home into God's family and be his own son and his own daughter, one of his own dear children. This peace of God through the mediator Jesus means not only your conscience was cleared according to Hebrews 22, but also we escape the sting of death for eternity. Why? Because we have peace with God. This comes through in Romans 5, 9-10 where Paul said, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Referring to Jesus. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, oh, it says, by His Son much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The gospel of peace is the gospel of Reconciliation. It serves as our boots in the middle of the warfare to stay planted that I am one of His sons and daughters. It is through the gospel of peace that I've been brought into the family of God. I cannot be kicked out of the family of God. And it will serve for me a firm grounding and a firm footing that I have peace with Him. The gospel of peace is the message of reconciliation. That God initiated toward us as His children through the cross of Jesus and what a powerful truth in daily spiritual warfare to plant our feet upon. Even when we're being chastised as children. Doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean He rescinds His peace. <laughs> of course not. Because we're one of His. We're one of His children. So the next time Satan brings that accusation, "Oh, how could God love you? You can't be possibly one of His children. No, no, no. The Bible says... Through the gospel of peace, the gospel of reconciliation, I'm one of his sons or daughters. I'm no longer one of his enemies, and so I need to uh, have a better understanding of the situation that I'm going through right now. Notice the next verse. He says in verse 16, "Above all, take note of that, because now we're moving to the last set, the last set of, of spiritual armor. Above all, he gets to this point. Take the shield of faith." Wherewith ye shall be able, again that Greek phrase, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Above all, this Greek word referring to shield, most of the time is describing a big, large shield. Some of you young guys in here, uh, you've probably watched or read uh, you know, G.A. Hinty books where it talks about the battles, that they use these type of shields in this first century. Roman context, and they would have been, you know, about two, two and a half feet wide, four, five foot tall, big shields that you could totally hide behind. And Paul says that faith is likened unto this big shield. And in that light, it makes it then, therefore, one of the most important parts of your armor. Because even if you didn't have the breastplate of righteousness, or you mistakenly took off your belt of truth, if you have the shield of faith, that can still serve as a vital uh, role of protection for you, can't it? But what's interesting here is Paul's, use, Paul's usage of the word faith throughout this epistle. What faith is he talking about here? You have in your mind what you think he's talking about. But remember the same Greek word that Paul uses for faith, he used in two ways in this epistle. In the first way... He, re- he uses the word faith to refer to the body of Christian beliefs and doctrines. You remember he did that in Ephesians 4.5 when he said, quote, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, Paul's talking about right there the one truth of the Christian faith, the beliefs. He uses that word again in multiple places. I'm just giving you a couple. He says in Ephesians 4.13, Until we all come into the unity of the faith, representing the Christian doctrine, Christian beliefs, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There, he's using the same Greek word to emphasize the body of beliefs that the Christian church holds to. But Paul uses the word faith in a different way also in this letter to the Ephesians. And he uses it to refer to the experiential faith or rather that which God grants to, grants to someone to bring them from spiritual blindness unto light. And he did that denoting or describing one's conversion, right? He does, listen how he uses it in Ephesians 1.15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith, that experiential faith, He's referring to that experience by which you've been converted from darkness unto light. Your faith, the Christian experience of being converted. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. He says it again. He uses it this way in Ephesians 3.17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye be rooted and grounded in love. So which one is he referring to here as the shield of faith? I present to you, beloved, that we can't know 100% with dogmatism. Here's why. Because the shield of faith representing as a set of body of divinity and doctrine, the truth of God's beliefs that he wants for his church, they do serve kind of like the belt of truth. They do serve kind of as a shield. They, They would repel false ideas, false notions, you know, confusion, right? But at the same time, the experiential aspect of being brought to the cross of Christ, the experiential aspect of really having your eyes and your conscience opened, that above all things the gospel is true and I believe it with all of my heart, that too can serve as a shield against what things sister Cox don't make total sense. when your own feelings and emotions themselves don't make total sense and everything around you just doesn't make sense. No, no, I know that what God showed me in His Son and in His word is true. And this is why Richard Warmbrandt could go through what he went through if you haven't watched the documentary Torture for Christ because he knew at the very end of the day what God did in him and for him changed him. He experienced and was granted real Christian faith. So both can work in this interpretation. What's Paul referring to? I have two reasons why I believe that Paul is referring to the experiential faith that we just mentioned, and he uses in Ephesians 1 and chapter 3 and elsewhere. Here's the first reason. The body of doctrine that we could say comprises the Christian faith that can also be considered as truth. And Paul seems to be laying out these spiritual armors as being distinct from one another. You have the belt. You have the breastplate. You have the shoes. You have these different pieces. So there is a sense in which they're distinct from one another. And if we say that the faith here is represented by this body of truth, well, it's a little bit redundant, isn't it, as the belt? It's a little bit repetitive. And I don't think Paul's doing that here. I think he's amplifying this shield as being distinct from the belt. Okay, so I don't think he's talking about here the body of divinity, the body of doctrine and truths that serve as the one true faith, such as one Lord, one baptism. Okay, that's my first reason. Secondly, and here's what I think is interesting consider the immediate preceding verse talking about the gospel of peace, and the immediate following verse referring to the helmet of salvation. And here in the middle, you have faith, you have gospel. You have faith, you have salvation. This is, in essence, beloved, this order, what Paul describes in Romans 10:17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I believe that Paul then therefore, is laying out for us in a way, the steps of how we're converted. We hear the gospel of peace, the word of God, come to us as sinners. We are granted by God experiential faith. And through that expression of faith, us confessing with our mouths that Christ is Lord, I believe what the Spirit of God is showing me, we are what? We are deemed saved. We have the righteousness of God imputed upon us. Thus, I'm convinced that Paul is telling these Christians And he's telling us as well that the union we have with Christ via faith which is granted to us by God by which we believe upon the gospel of peace is the most precious all protecting portion of our Christian armor that has been gifted to us by our sovereign heavenly Father. Because it's nothing that I could have done to appropriate to myself. He birthed me. He gave me the eyes to see. Those eyes to see Those eyes to hold on to, those eyes to believe. I believe Paul is telling us, above all is the most precious, important piece of our armor. Moving on to verse 17, let us consider then the helmet of salvation. The head, as you know, in a war, it is the most targeted area in a battle. Upon receiving a head wound, a soldier is quickly disadvantaged in a battle. And it's an important to note here that Paul is referring to Christians who have already, as he has demonstrated, possessed salvation and that they can never lose it. So what is he referring to here? Well, what he's referring to is the attacks of Satan that are aimed at the assurance of your salvation. Having a correct understanding of who offers one's salvation having a correct understanding of who grants one's salvation, and having a correct understanding of who preserves one's salvation is a vital importance in the Christian's armor just as a helmet protects your head, one of the most targeted areas in a battle. Any weak spot in your understanding with who saved you, how you were saved, And how you stay saved will make you very susceptible to the wiles of the devil. Which is why, we should never be ashamed of saying this, the doctrines of Arminians and their system is very harmful and dangerous to the church of Christ. Why? Because the system of Arminian theology teaches while God initiates the process, you contribute to it. That's how you're saved. How you stay saved is God contributes to it, but you indeed preserve and maintain it by your own works and your own obedience. That's ultimately the very simplest way you can boil down an Arminian system of understanding how you are saved and how you stay saved. And their understanding, you could take off your helmet. And if you get shot with the arrow, then there's grace and forgiveness. Yes, you could be healed up, but you pick up the helmet of salvation and you put it back on. And now you're saved again. Oh, but you took your helmet off again. You see, that, that that's why it's so harmful. I'm going to give you one verse that demonstrates how Paul believed you're saved, how he understood the importance and the um, strength of the helmet to protect the Christian in warfare, that demonstrates that God calls us, God saves us and he keeps us. And it's from John 10:28. Many of you have studied this, I'm sure, and you know it well. It's the words of our dear Savior. Listen to what he says. My sheep hear my voice. He calls, and I know them in the Greek, know is not just a knowledge, it's a love. It's an effectual fervent love. My sheep hear my voice, I call I initiate the call, they follow me, they hear the voice, they heed the call. I'm not going to add a lot of commentary to this because we're out of time. I give unto them eternal life. So who does it all originate with there? Our salvation originates with His call. It originates with the life that He gives. But who keeps it? He continues to say the words of Jesus. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He calls us, He saves us. And as old pastor Shay used to say at the Bible Study Chapel Church, He keeps us. The helmet of salvation in the heat of the accusations of the devil, you must put on and protect your head of who saved you, how you are saved, and who maintains your salvation. If not, it's going to be a hard way to go as a Christian. Let's consider lastly the sixth piece of armor. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. The Roman sword that Paul is using in his analogy here was a small sword. It was intended to be so, so it wouldn't be burdensome to carry around. It could be easily and quickly yielded in battle. Um and, but yet it was deadly when it was skillfully employed. It wasn't this big, uh, you know, um, a lot of you boys are, Nolan, you have these at home, these big swords from the, the 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 medieval era where you know there were knights and, and kings and all of this and they had the big giant swords that's that's not the the Roman sword even though it was small it could be swiftly used and, and and skillfully employed and very dangerous uh, scholars believe it ranged from six inches very small almost like a dagger to eighteen inches long so this is a very small sword but Paul clearly tells us here in verse seventeen doesn't he that he's using this analogy of the sword. To represent the word of God. Here the analogy is very clear. It is the word of God that he wants us to consider as our weapon. Now what do we do with this? Because when I was studying this I saw that the belt of truth. I amplified for you guys is the word of God. That helps us to discern everything that comes with at us. For our acceptance or, or, or our rejection. It, it, it serves as our discernment you see the word of truth. It's that which we're to use in a sense to cinch up our thinking. Right? And so it is as though in the initial steps of spiritual warfare we're to have the truth to cinch up our thinking. But I believe that it's still properly the right interpretation of verse 11 because right here in verse number 17, the sword of the spirits uh, or the, the word of God is an analogy for the sword of the spirits that's used in an offensive way now. You see in verse 11 it's used in a sense to, uh, as a preventative thing. It's used as a, as a way to cinch up our thinking, uh, to give us discernment so for the sword that, it that we don't unnecessarily become hindered with a, a loose garment. But here, it's being used as a sword. And I believe that that's what maintains its distinction in the separate pieces of armor is how it's going to be employed. I take this distinction from as I said, verse 13, with the sword's or that is the Word of God, I should say, its particular use to be used in the sense of not only defending off falsehoods of Satan, doctrinal lies, untruths of Satan, but also to be used on the offensive, offensive, to persuade sinners and the evangelism with the gospel of Christ. It's to be used offensively to help us now as Christians to what? To grow and, and to, to conform our lives more into the principles and the precepts of God's word. And so here it's, it's used in a more artfully way, you see, as a trained soldier would have been trained in the skill of using and utilizing his sword in the midst of combat. Well, I contend that this is setting up the truth. Verse 13, uh, set up the truth to frame our thinking. But here in verse 17, the the word of God is skillfully used by us now as we engage in battle to be able to artfully discern, to put off, and to uh, defend against all the wiles of the devil. Notice here, and and consider that in the engagement of battle, the Word of God is the sword, and it is the sword that actually is the only thing that largely a soldier would have used on his first attempt in an attack. He wouldn't use his shield, even though he had his shield and they did use it in measures, and this is where sometimes analogies fall apart. But the point I want to bring out is that the sword, that the, sword the, word of the, God, the Word of God, it is alone itself powerful enough we don't need other things to be used along with that which god gives us to use to bring attacks upon the forces of darkness to use to block and defend against attacks of the forces of darkness while i do indeed read other books guys Uh, help me to grow and try to understand certain developments of theology so forth and so on i love to read history books and things of that nature i should never spend more time never be more knowledgeable about other books that I am the sword that God's given me. Going back to what I said, coming into the uh, consideration of the pieces of armor, beloved, let us not ever forsake the armor that God stamped for approval. Now, for a closing thought, let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5, and we'll close. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another epistle that Paul was inspired to write. And you hear this constant analogy of spiritual warfare. You hear the constant analogy of armor being brought forth in many of his epistles. And I thought that this was just a good passage of Scripture to close upon today as it really brings into focus the reality of what we all are going to leave here and do this week. He says, beginning with verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. That's exactly what he's teaching us here in Ephesians 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to pulling down of strongholds. Casting down, verse 5 says, imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Isn't that a nice finishing just synopsis or touch to everything we've considered about the usefulness of all these individual pieces of armor and recognizing that they aid us in bringing all thoughts, all things into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. May the Lord help us in the days to come. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our blessed triune God, we, first of all, just are humbled, Lord, by looking back today on these texts and reflecting about the gospel, about, Lord, the faith that you granted us, Lord, understanding um, that which Paul has already clearly communicated, how we are saved, how we are are kept by you and your uh, preserving fatherly hands. Lord, it humbles us every time we hear the old, old story. We are reminded of our great indebtedness to your mercy and your grace through thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you, I pray, through your Spirit, help us to just further meditate and, upon, uh, and, and Lord, ponder upon the truths of your, your armor. You state very clearly today that these pieces of armor that you have given us, Lord, they are able uh, to equip us to resist the attacks of Satan and the temptations of Satan. And, oh God, my prayer is for not only myself, but all of these dear, precious, blood-bought Christians, is that your Spirit would help us, oh God, to, to bring, as we just closed with this text in 2 Corinthians 10, every single thought That oftentimes, Lord, isn't necessarily brought from the outside of ourselves, but emanate from within, under the obedience of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to let your truth bear upon it. Lord, forgive us when we fail in these areas. Lord, we are so thankful that today we were reminded to look to the righteousness of Jesus as our breastplate that protects these vitally important spiritual organs that are um, Lord, necessary for life and for existence. If one of these organs, oh God, were the analogy to serve its purpose, be harmed or removed or, or killed, Lord, we would have no life. And, and so we thank you that we look to Christ, especially, Lord, in the preparation, coming to the Lord's Supper. We once again look to His death, His perfect life, His perfect work, and His triumphant resurrection, promising a future resurrection of our own. O God, we pray, be with us this week. We confess we are weak and we are feeble. Do that which you remind us constantly we cannot do, is to keep our eyes upon the cross of Calvary, and to live for your glory by the means which you give us. Prayer, your word, oh, and being connected in union and communion with your church, we thank you for these gifts, Father. You are loving, you are caring, and you, Keep us on the straight and narrow path by your grace. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.